This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I issue open warnings now to all dope pushers. It's January 2nd, 1974, Inauguration Day, and Detroit's newly elected mayor, Coleman Young, has something to say to the city's crooks. It's time to leave Detroit. It ain't my road. And I don't give a damn if they're black or white, if they wear super fly suits or blue uniforms or silver badges. Hit the road! After Coleman Young became Detroit's first black mayor, a lot of people did hit Eight Mile Road. White people. White flight has already begun here. Whites fled to the suburbs with some bitterness. Most of the people in the neighborhood are prejudiced in the sense that they don't like black people on the surface, but as far as actual practice of any discrimination, they don't. The only thing they do is leave. As white people abandoned Detroit, jobs left too. They started lining up at midnight to get job applications that were due to be handed out at 8 a.m. The job seekers far outnumbered the 200 or so jobs that are available. The crowd was unruly at times, pushing and shoving, and occasionally tempers flared to the point that punches were thrown and some got hurt. Rose Graves is one of the lucky few who was able to get a Cadillac job application. I think we got a find somewhere to get some jobs in the city of Detroit. Well, I had to say it this way. Either I'm going to work or I had to get on welfare, one of the two. For Detroiters, there were few prospects in sight. But that created another business opportunity. You can't lose with, with drugs because anybody use it or mess with it always wants more. Dope is a strong thing. It always makes you want more. Today on the show, we meet the man who turned heroin into one of Detroit's only remaining growth industries, Eddie Jackson. Eddie was a, first off, God rest his soul, he was a good guy. He wanted to see everybody eat. He was the Santa Claus of the East Side back in his day. I'm Drew Nellis. Welcome to Crime Town. I think that the pall of crime drives businesses out of the city. I think a fear of crime in the neighborhoods forces our citizens to move out to the suburbs. This city teaches you one thing for sure. You always need a hustle. If Detroit goes down the drain, black and white go down the drain together. You can't tell the difference between black and white in the sewer. What kind of kid was Eddie? 
always into something. Always, ever since he was six years old. This is Courtney Brown, and he's talking about his best friend, Eddie Jackson. Like what? Like anything. You steal something, take something, whatever it is. Crap games in the alley or the backyard or whatever it was. Man, Eddie always been a good hustler, though, even when we was kids. Courtney grew up in the 40s in Paradise Valley, a black working-class neighborhood. He and Eddie were opposites. Courtney was skinny, quiet, and responsible, while Eddie was a chubby hellraiser. One day, the two of them were wandering around Belle Isle, an island in the Detroit River, when Eddie saw something he liked. And he sees this bike. So a little white kid come up and start threatening him and tell him that, uh, what are you doing with his bike and this, that, and the other. So he hits Eddie. So when he done that, I grabbed the white boy, threw him down, and said, apologize to my friend, just like that. And uh, I said, he wasn't going to take your bike, man. He just be inquisitive. When we got back home, his father see he had dirt all on him. He asked, what happened? Eddie told his father how Courtney had stood up for him. And his father said then, say, from now on in life, you got a true friend. As they grew up, Courtney and Eddie took different paths. Courtney got married and had a couple of kids. He moved his family to a little house on the west side and got a job driving a city bus. I mean, I enjoyed driving the bus. You'd meet different people, then different round, then it was a steady income. What was your route? All these satellites, Verna, Gratiot, Jefferson, then six mile, seven mile, eight mile. As Courtney drove his route, he saw how the city was falling apart around him. Empty storefronts, abandoned cars, gutted apartments. Then, on a long, hot summer night in 1967, he was driving the bus when he found himself in the middle of a turning point in Detroit's history. Where it all began early this morning with a police raid on an after-hours drinking parlor. There have been some reports of gunfire. Police are under orders not to fire. I had a little transistor radio. People was getting on saying they were doing something on 12th Street. And the station master asked me, say, Brown, you want to work uh, overtime? The station master told Courtney to drive to the armory. When he got there, the armory was full of National Guardsmen, called in to deal with the riots. And I remember the National Guard guys was putting on their uniform. And the guy was, whoever was, say, lock and load, lock and load, lock and load. Lock and load, lock and load. In a hundred places, Detroit is a fire. Whole blocks are now burning at dusk. The National Guard has moved in. After his shift ended, Courtney picked his kids up from their grandmothers. As they were driving home, he saw a group of National Guardsmen up ahead at an intersection. So when I approached stop, make a stop at stop sign, they jumped up with their rifles. And I just went off. I called them all kind of names. What the fuck are you doing, motherfucker? You putting that gun to go off and kill my kid? What the fuck you going to do? What you going to say? Man, be quiet. Fuck you. Sergeant or lieutenant came and said, what's the problem? He said, you, drive, you work for the city? He said, yeah, I'm a bus driver. He said, I'm sorry. And he said, well, go ahead on. 
Courtney took his kids home. But the riot, or rebellion, as a lot of people in Detroit call it, went on for four more days. By the end, at least 43 people had been killed, most of them black. In the wake of the riots, Detroit continued its decline. But for Courtney's old troublemaking friend Eddie, this new Detroit was full of opportunity. So I go by his house, and the phone rang, and he says, uh, he answered the phone for me. So I answered the phone, and I said, a guy named John. So uh, he had the phone, he said, wait here for me, I'll be right back. He comes back, he, about a half an hour, 45 minutes, he come back, he throws a, a bag on the table, just like that. I say, what's that, sugar, flour? He said, no, that's dope. And he said, taste it. I said, what? At that time, I'm 30. I've never seen heroin in my life. I said, like a little kid, I'm scared. So I tasted it. And I said, man, you truly, somebody pay you for this shit? He said, yeah. And I said, Eddie, you got to be crazy. He said, no, I'm telling you, man, that's where the money's at. And I still, I go on back to work. I didn't even think of no more about it than the man in the moon. But some of Eddie's other childhood friends found the heroin trade a little more appealing. A guy named Charles Rudolph was working in the foundry at Chrysler, and it was a tough job. You know, uh, it was a foundry, sweating, running off of you like you're in the tropics somewhere. So uh, I worked that job for five years. You know, hard job in the foundry. And I really don't know nothing about drugs. So I did this. I said, I want me a, a Cadillac Eldorado. So I got some drugs from Eddie on consignment. I sold mine for $3 a pill. I never picked up my last check from the foundry. I started working for Eddie. I kind of joined in and was one of his lieutenants, you know. And on from there, it was more money, more money, more money. Eddie got deeper and deeper into the game. His operation grew, his brothers came on board, and he started to make serious money. One day, Courtney went out looking for Eddie and ran into one of his brothers. I saw his brother standing on the corner where they hang out at, and I said, where's your brother? He said, he's driving his car. I said, what kind of goddamn regular-ass car he got? He came around the block in this red, I didn't know who the car was, it was a red convertible Cadillac. And his brother lied said, there he is right there. So I looked over and said, where? He said, in that car there. What car? He said, that Cadillac. And then Eddie rolled down the window, waved to me, come here. I said, nigga, I ain't gonna get in that damn car, it's stolen ass car. His brother said, he ain't stolen, he just bought the car from Coffee Cadillac. And he paid cash for it. I said, cash? I got in the car, he peeled out some money, I don't forgot how much he gave me. And uh, say, how you like your man now? Eddie was driving a new Cadillac. Courtney was driving a city bus, making just enough to scrape by. I said, I'm not going nowhere with this. And I, I haggled over myself. I woke up on a Monday morning, and I said, I'm going to see Eddie. So I get in my car and drives over to his house, and uh, he, you know, we greeted each other, and, and he said, what's the deal, Bermy? Courtney 
wanted in. And uh, he say, well, you caught me the right time. How about $400 a week? That's more than what I was making driving the bus. Tax clear. What was going through your mind when you're thinking, either I work for Eddie or I go back to this legit job? Was there any struggle with that? No, the only thing I say, well, I thought about it. And I say, forget it. Uh, I ain't going back. I could just quit. And that was it. That was the beginning. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Eddie Jackson was rising in Detroit's heroin underworld. And as he brought his friends along with him, they learned the tricks of the trade. Charles Rudolph got a job working at Eddie's dope house. I started off as a doorman, opening the door. Eddie had bought the building, so they put like a pipe through from upstairs to down. All I would do was open the door. The customer would tell me what he, what he or she wanted. I would go upstairs and put it through a chute in the door, the money. They dropped the drugs through the pipe on the floor. I never picked it up. A customer could never say I gave them nothing. Charles also learned how to cut heroin into what they called mixed jive. Certain things like quinine, uh, lactose that you would use to cut drugs. You just could buy those in the store because drugs is 97% filler. It's so powerful. And they started adding dormants to it. Dormant is a sleeping pill. It helped you sleep. The drugs was weak. You feel sleepy and think you're in a nod. And Charles learned how to cap up the dope. We capping up gelatin caps, and uh, they only sold for a dollar. And that was that was the the low end of the business. And then you had a little higher, where you had a fifteen dollar pack, a thirty dollar pack, and a forty five or fifty dollar pack. This is all mixed heroin, the kind that people inject. I get fascinated looking at them, they capping stuff up. Courtney Brown, Eddie's old friend from Paradise Valley, was watching and learning too. Eddie taught him the rules. Rule number one, the customer is king. Well, they don't call them junkies, junkies, or dope fiends. Rule number two, don't mix business with pleasure. You cannot trade drugs for sex. If you want to buy some sex, buy it from them. Rule number three, cash or credit accepted. They ain't got no money, don't worry about it. They say they're going to pay you later, that's what you do. Rule number four, don't sell to white people. We don't do no business with them, and we ain't selling them nothing. Don't trust them, period. And the most important rule of all. You say, always remember this. I say, what, well, Eddie? Treat it like a business. 
After a while, they started calling the fat man. But before then, because he was heavy set. He liked to eat, you know. I used to like to watch war movies. Everybody knew that, you know. And then Eddie would say, well, you're a field marshal. You know, that's when he started calling me field marshal. The fat man had his second in command, the field marshal. And soon enough, they started spreading the wealth around. Nowadays in the strip clubs, they be calling making it rain. Again, Charles Rudolph. But Eddie is the first one ever I knew to ride through the depressed area where we were selling dope and, you know, throw money out of the car. Ones, fives, and tens. They wasn't just all one dollar bills, you know. I was with him when he bought the Rolls Royce. A Rolls has a spot for a phone. It has a fire extinguisher in it. It has three radios. I don't know, AM, FM, shortwave, or whatever. And it's a, a real nice car. And we rode downtown to the bar where the hoes work. He wanted to show the people he had got a Rolls Royce. Along with flashy cars, Eddie bought an expensive new wardrobe and started flying around the country, first class. And in the spring of 1971, he headed to New York for an important social function. I predict that when I meet Joe Frazier, this will be like a good amateur fighting a real professional. This will be like The fight of the century. Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier at Madison Square Garden. He goes to New York, going to this shoe store around the corner on Broadway. So when he goes in there, he, you know, picking out shoes and stuff for the fight. Courtney says there was another man at the clothing store, an Italian guy, who struck up a conversation with Eddie. And say, man, uh, who you like for the fight? Eddie tells me, he say, uh, I like Ali. Yeah, I say, I like uh, Frazier. He said, you want to make a small wager? So Eddie think he's joking. He said, small wager. Eddie make $10, $15. Guy say, how about 10000 10000 So Eddie said, all right. He said, well, how are we going to pay each other then? He said, you seem like you're a gentleman. And whoever loses, come back here, money, and straighten the bill out. He said, but the Italian tells him, ain't nobody going to lose, though. So Eddie Law, Eddie came back, gave the guy the ten thousand. He said, "I knew he was a gentleman." He said, "I think we're in the same business." And Eddie caught on what he was talking about. Bring back three kilos, sixteen thousand dollars a piece, and we really didn't know the quality of what we was getting at the time. We, we just know it was dope and it was good, and that's all we knew. And that's when we really started making the money. With Eddie's new Italian connection, he could expand his business even more. And to transport the dope from New York to Detroit, he hired some drivers, like this guy. My name is Black Butch. And uh, in my younger years, you understand, I used to sell drugs. I was doing all the road work. I was going from different states, transporting anywhere from one to two million dollars worth of heroin. From New York to Detroit. And how did you do that? 
at the time, we would have stashes in the closet, and the police weren't hip to that shit. So when you say stashes in the car, what do you like mean? Like a hidden compartment? Yeah, maybe? yeah. Mm-hmm. So what did that look like? Like where was it in the car? Yeah, it, be, it could be anywhere. In the Fleetwood, in the door. You know, the dashboard. Places where things ain't supposed to be, you know? Black Butch would drive to New York a couple times a week. And the Italians would tell him where to leave the stash car. Downtown. Every time I meet him would be downtown or either in Chinatown. Broad daylight. I have to park the car, leave it. Where would you go? Go to a hotel until he called me. And how long would that usually take? No more about an hour or two. And they'll tell me when they come back to pick the car up. And when I pick the car up, the car be loaded. And from the time I meet them and they let me go, I don't have to worry about nothing until I get across the George Washington Bridge. When I get on the other side, I'm on my own then. Why? Because they made sure that I had protection from to get out of downtown New York. And I never had no problems. These sound like some powerful people. Oh, they are. What's going through your mind when you're transporting that much product? Don't get process? caught. Don't get caught, that's the main thing. And I was blessed because I never did get stopped. Eddie had built one of Detroit's largest narcotics networks. And now he had a wholesale connection back east. He was at the top of his game. So he did what everyone who could afford it was doing. He fled Detroit for the safety and comfort of the suburbs. In his case, it was to a place northwest of the city called Southfield, Charles Rudolph went with Eddie when he bought the house. Oh, it was Eddie's house was beautiful. I was with Eddie when he, uh, the lady named, her name was Miss Soberman. She's probably a rich Jewish woman. Here is two young black guys, and this older white lady opened the door for us. Well, she receiving the guy that's buying her home. She, I, had, I had never met people like this. Eddie bought the house in 71. Again, Courtney Brown. And then he said, oh, I'm going to do this with it, I'm going to do this with it, and, and build a wall and all this, you know, for, for security lights and floodlights and all that. And then he had swimming pool and all that done there. And Eddie says, your man needs some company. I said, what you mean, company? He say, uh... Won't you move out here with me? I say, man, you crazy. And I say, man, I can't afford to move to Southfield, not there. He started laughing. He said, God damn you. I know you're a man. You got your own price. Here, here what I do. From now on, you don't work for me. You're a partner. Now can you afford it? In fact, Eddie already had a house picked out for Courtney, right next door. I took my wife out there. I go to the guy, knock on his door. And uh, uh, he said, where's your parents at? I said, what? He said, where's your parents at? I said, we the parents. How, how old were you? I was 30 then. No, I was 31. And the guy whose house it was, was he a white guy? Yeah, he was a white dentist yeah. named Steinberg. Then I said, well, what do you, what do you want for it? 
60, is 65,000 all right? I said, yeah, when, when can I bring you the money? He said, what? I said, when can I bring you the money? He said, oh, no, 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 no. He said, I said, I'll tell you what then, I'll bring a cashier's check when we close. It was new to me. You know that you could buy anything you want to buy. It changed my whole lifestyle. Send my kids to the best of schools. I mean, I would take my kids to the concerts. I would take them to, then send them on vacations, to Disney World, Disneyland, Hawaii, Mexico, wherever they wanted to go, they could. I was buying three cars. Every time the model changed, I would buy. I bought Catholic Fleetwood for five straight years. Then I bought my wife. First, I bought Thunderbird. Then I moved up to Eldorado and Lincolns. And then I'll buy a third car that's just right around. Did you like your job? What was the best part of your job? The best part of the job was the women. Again, Charles Rudolph. And we got a car that was a nice color, and women liked it. You know, I, that's what I liked about it. Everything I ever did was because of women. Everything I ever did. What was the worst part of the job? The worst part is seeing my friends that I've known all my life. Some people got addicted. Some of them broke from it. This one guy used to work with us named Bots. He was an addict that uh, his neck was turned to the side because of a bad hit in that juggler vein in the neck. It left scars on people. Uh, when you got to punch a needle in your body every day, you got to get a vein. I have excellent veins. You could see all in my hand and everything. People used to look at me and say, I wish I had your vein. Because at first they start off hidden in the easy place. I'm pointing at my hand where you can see the veins come up and on my arm, but it burns out your veins some kind of way. Have people looking for veins in the most weirdest place. They vagina down by the scrotum, uh, up in the hairline somewhere. You got, you know, veins all over your body. It could have killed somebody's sister, mama, aunt, brother. A lot of people died. Next time on Crime Town, the fat man and the field marshal meet the feds. Whenever I had some free time and uh, was not obligated to be helping other agents on their cases, I would, by myself generally, surveil Eddie Jackson. Primetown is Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier. This season is made in partnership with Gimlet Media and Spotify. It's produced by Samantha Lee, 
John White, Rob Zipko, and Soraya Shockley. The senior producer is me, Drew Nellis. Editing by Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Editing help from Alex Bloomberg and Caitlin Kenny. Fact-checking by Jennifer Blackman. This episode was mixed, sound designed, and scored by Kenny Kusiak. Original music this season composed by Homer Steinweiss. We recorded some original music at Rust Belt Studios in Detroit, in partnership with Detroit Sound Conservancy. Special thanks to Carlton Goles and Maurice Piranahead Heard. Additional music by Kenny Kusiak and additional mixing by Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Politicians in My Eyes by Death. Our credit music this week is Some Things I Just Don't Do by Detroit Soul Ambassador Melvin Davis. Archival research by Brennan Reese. Show art and design by James Cabrera and Elise Harvin. We've got a great website with bonus content for each episode, like photos, videos, and newspaper clippings, as well as a full list of credits and a transcript. Check it out at crimetownshow.com. Thanks to the Detroit Free Press, Peter Batia, Jim Schaefer, Mary Schrader, the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University, Mary Wallace, the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, Melissa Sampson, the Detroit Historical Society, Scott Bernstein, Courtney Brown Jr., Cody Ryder, and everyone who shared their stories with us. Detroit is an amazing place, and we're honored to tell a small part of its story. Alex Bloomberg is the podfather. So the other day we're in a meeting, and he throws a bag on the table, just like that. I say, what's that, sugar, flour? He says, no, that's dope. And he says, taste it. I say, what? He says, taste it. Now I'm 32. I have never seen heroin in my life. I'm like a little kid, I'm scared. So I taste it. And I say, Alex, truly somebody pays you for this shit? He says, yeah. I say, Alex, you've gotta be crazy. He says, no, I'm telling you, man, that's where the money's at.